0: Everybody, welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today Joe is back, and he's back for the beginning of season four, and it's a new season on Passing Judgment, and it's a new season for the Supreme Court. We are going to be talking about the 2022-2023 Supreme Court term. For all of you who have listened to this podcast at least once before, you know that I love the Supreme Court season because these are such big meaty issues and they have real effects on our daily lives as we saw from the courts last term. So Joe, welcome back. Please talk to us about what we're gonna discuss today.
1: Hello, Jessica. Welcome to season four of our podcast when we started this just a few years ago. Could you imagine that we'd get all the way to season four? I hope we have 400 of these things. Does that sound laborious or does that sound like fun or some combination of the two? I don't know. Jessica, there has been a torrent of recent news that falls under the Passing Judgment podcast podcast purview. Uh, Among them, we'll get to the cases in just a second, the Supreme Court has denied former President Trump's request to intervene and allow a special master to review about 100 classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago in August. Just this week, the January 6th committee held its ninth and final hearing during which the nine members of the panel voted unanimously to subpoena former President Donald Trump in regards to his involvement in the insurrection of January 6th. But we have that tradition here on Passing Judgment. We started it just a few months after we started the podcast itself. At the beginning of every Supreme Court term, Jessica and I give you a preview of the big cases that are going to be before the court in that term. We've done this for the two past Supreme Court seasons. And I, Jessica, like you said, I know you are a quiver with excitement because it's like Christmas for court watchers. So enough out of me. Let's get to it. Jessica, the six to three GOP majority is flexing its power in the Supreme Court. We have all watched what the court did in its last term, and it was a big one, the fallout of which is still being felt in our society. Abortion is no longer protected at the federal level, and gun owners have more rights, among other things. That's just two of the decisions to come out of the last session of the Supreme Court. So now let's talk about what issues will be before the court this session for the next nine or so months. We've got cases about redistricting and voting rights. We've got a First Amendment case that deals with Andy Warhol. Yes, you heard that right. We've got a case that addresses affirmative action, uh, yet another religious rights and discrimination case, and a doozy of a case, I feel silly using that word in this context, but a doozy of a case with colossal implications that deals with what is referred to as the independent legislature doctrine, something you're going to be hearing an awful lot about and something for which I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. So that's our teaser for the latter part of this episode. But before, Jessica, even before we cycle through the big issues before the court this term, we have to welcome a new justice to the bench, Ketanji Brown Jackson. She is the first African-American woman on the bench and only the third black justice overall in the history of the Supreme Court. And many of the justices have been quiet during their first few oral arguments on the bench. I know you listened to the first cases of them, Jessica. How is Justice Jackson doing?
0: I think she's just been extraordinary, and her intellect is absolutely on full display. As you said, Joe, a lot of the justices in the first few oral arguments, and in fact, for some of them, the first few sessions, really the first few terms, they're getting their grounding, they're kind of figuring out what's going on not Justice Jackson. Very first week, very first oral argument, she was a very active participant. And one of the things that I noted and a lot of other people noted is the court heard a really important case dealing with the Voting Rights Act and really the purpose behind that landmark civil rights law. And she gave really a masterclass in what the 14th amendment is designed to protect what the voting rights law is designed to protect and she did not pull any punches she will i believe end up writing a dissent in that case but it's really important still for someone to say look here is the law here was the original intent and we should protect the right to vote so that's just one example joe but She certainly is not wasting any time. She obviously has been confirmed for a while and had a bunch of time to read the cases, do her homework, and she clearly did.
1: I know that Justice Thomas was pretty quiet for a very, very long time. Coming out of his shell, so to speak, when this new six to three conservative majority began the situation on the court. So, Jessica, let's dive into these cases. I am fairly certain, Jessica, that this is the first time that the avant garde artist Andy Warhol has come up on our podcast. And if there's any way we can get some David Bowie in here, that would be cool by me. How is it that his name is being uttered around the Supreme Court? After all, Warhol died. 35 years ago. What does an artist who died 35 years ago have to do with the First Amendment here in late 2022?
0: So this has to do with a photograph that was taken by a photographer named Lynn Goldsmith. She was hired by Vanity Fair to take a picture of Prince. And then Later, Andy Warhol made a painting out of that picture. As we record this episode, I'm actually looking at a split screen. On the left side of my screen, I have the black and white picture that Lynn Goldsmith took of Prince. And then on the right side, I have the new version. I'm using my words very carefully. The new version that Andy Warhol made of the picture and it's clearly patterned after the picture. It changes because as I said, the picture was black and white. The painting actually has a red background and Prince's face is purple and there's some red drawing over the painting. Now, why did it, this isn't an art history podcast. Why did I spend some time talking about this? Because the question really is, did Andy Warhol transform the picture enough such that he is entitled to some First Amendment protection here. So the idea is that, Joe, if you take a picture, or we all, I hope, know that you're a singer-songwriter, if you create a piece of music, I can't just take that and decide to sell it. But if I take it and I transform it and I put enough of my own expression into it, then I can be entitled to some First Amendment protection. And that's really what this case was about. Now, Joe, I have to mention there was one, I think, very lighthearted moment in oral arguments. You noted that Justice Clarence Thomas was really silent for a very long time on the bench. And it was actually during COVID when The Supreme Court turned to doing oral arguments over the phone, and the chief justice went in order of seniority. So he went down the line of asking each person a question as opposed to a free-for-all. We started hearing from Justice Thomas, and that hasn't changed since they went back into court. So they're having this discussion about the contours of the First Amendment and Justice Thomas says to a lawyer, now, assume that I'm a Prince fan. And then he says, quote, which I was in the 1980s. Justice Elena Kagan, not missing a beat, says no longer. And then Justice Thomas very quickly responds only on Thursday night. Now, Joe, I have I had two feelings about that. One was I love to see office place colleagues who don't agree with each other joking around. They need to be able to interact as humans. And then at the same time, I was thinking this is the court that is whittling away all of our freedoms or many of our freedoms. And they're joking about being Prince fans. But I have to say in the end, I'm glad that they had that interaction and that we get to talk about it.
1: The revolution will be live streamed, Jessica. And I can't (laughs) wait to hear your covers album of my upcoming album for those songs. All right, Jessica, moving on. Affirmative action has been a hotly contested topic for decades in our country. And for this, the court is looking at a previous decision called Grutter versus Bollinger from 2003. There are two sets of cases here as for why is the court revisiting this?
0: Yeah. So the answer really is that the court does not decide to take up the affirmative action issue unless it wants to change the law. Now, a reminder that it only takes four votes to accept a case, and it obviously takes five votes to change the law, but this is a Supreme Court that is ready to say that universities and colleges cannot consider race when it comes to admissions. So there are two different cases here. One deals with the University of North Carolina, which is a public institution. One deals with Harvard College, which is obviously a private institution. And they bring up slightly different legal issues as a result of that. But I think the punchline here is, can you legally use race when you are making admissions decisions because you want a more diverse student body? That 2003 case, Joe, that you mentioned, the Grutter case, it says, yes, race can be one factor. can't be the only factor. You can't have a straight quota system, but race can be a factor. Now, that was a much more liberal court. I don't think there's anybody who was in the majority for the Grutter decision who's now currently on the court. And so, you know, it doesn't take a genius to say, The court will very likely say that it violates the law to allow colleges and universities to consider race when they're making their admissions decisions.
1: Okay, Jessica, not to get too political in terms of the Supreme Court, but many Republicans say that there is no longer a need for affirmative action. And therein lies that 6 3 conservative majority on the court. But if you would do a little crystal ball here for a little bit of analysis for us. What do you think? You yourself work in higher education and you live in the United States. So do you have thoughts on this?
0: I I do have thoughts on this. I mean, what I will say is like, we know from study after study that it's not just morally the right thing to have more diversity in education, but it actually leads to better outcomes for everybody. And this really shouldn't be a discussion just about higher education. Now, those are the cases that are before the court, but we should ensure that every person, regardless of their background, has access to excellent education starting from when they are a child. And When we talk about affirmative action, it's just a very small slice of a much broader conversation that we have to have about ensuring a diversity of perspectives, of gender background, racial background, and ensuring that people have access to education before they are going to college, before they are going to a university. So that's my long way of saying These are cases that are important. They're going to grab headlines, but they're only a small part of a much broader conversation that we have to have.
1: And I would posit, if I can for a second here, Jessica, that for a lot of people, from my experience, perhaps this is anecdotal, but when you go away to college, even if that's away is an hour away, it may be the first time in your life as a young person who's developing that you are now thrust into an environment with people from different backgrounds. Maybe they're different colors. Maybe they grew up speaking different languages in their homes. That exposure for all of the above people is absolutely crucial to the development of a well-rounded person, putting away my soapbox and moving on, Jessica. Thank you. Next up, there is a big case dealing with executive power and environmental protection. I know the court touched on this topic a little bit in the last term, but Jessica, can you please tell us about the specifics of this new case?
0: Yeah, this is a case dealing with the Clean Water Act and environmental rights. It was argued on the very first day of the term, October 3rd. And the question is basically whether the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit that, Joe, you and I live under, we live in Los Angeles and California, whether the Ninth Circuit used the right test for determining when wetlands are, quote, waters of the United States what difference does it make if wetlands are waters of the United States? It means that they can be regulated under the Clean Water Act. So this is all about what's the scope of the Clean Water Act, what's covered by it, and it might sound like, oh, isn't this a case of statutory interpretation? What I would say for those listening in terms of why we decided to include this case, it's a big case dealing with the power of the Clean Water Act and how much it covers and how much it allows the government basically to take actions in order to try and make sure, as the name of the act says, in order to make sure that we have clean water. And we talked about a corollary case last term, Joe, dealing with the Environmental Protection Act. There are going to be more of these cases dealing with these big statutes that address environmental protection and how far those statutes can go, how far the government can go in flexing their power to, frankly, try and protect us and the environment.
1: Okay, moving on again. Thank you for that, Jessica. Things are now heating up with these cases slated for oral arguments. We have now got a case called the 303 Creative Case, and it contains anti-discrimination and religious rights issues. What is our point of entry into this minefield of religious rights and personal freedoms, Jessica?
0: So some people may remember that a few years ago we had a case dealing with a cake maker, a wedding cake maker, who did not want to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple for their wedding. And the court basically disposed of it on procedural grounds. They just didn't want to get into the big issue. And the big issue was the cake maker said... Like I have genuinely held religious beliefs, and they are that two people of the same sex should not get married, and it violates my religious beliefs if I'm forced to make them a cake for their wedding. Now, on the other side, the state law in that case said we have an anti-discrimination law, and you cannot say, I won't serve people just because they are same-sex couples. So you can't deny service on the basis of LGBTQ status. We basically have the same issue now before us, but this is a would-be website designer. And she actually has not designed websites, as far as I understand, yet for weddings. But she wants to do that. And what she said is that the law in Colorado, the public accommodations law, which is really their anti-discrimination law, that it would tell her that she can't say no to the same-sex couple. So it brings up exactly the same issue. Basically, who's going to win? Is it the would-be website designer who says, you can't force me to, it violates my religious beliefs to have to design this website? Or is it the same-sex couple who are saying, we're looking at the state's anti-discrimination law and you can't deny a service on the basis of LGBTQ status? Now, Look, I don't know how many times, Joe, we're going to say this in the next few months and years. It's a very conservative court, and I suspect that I know where they're going. And they have been very, very protective of almost anyone who has said, I have a religious objection to you know, fill in the blank. And that's why I think in this case, the court will likely side with the would-be website designer.
1: Okay, Jessica. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have a pair of cases that involve elections and voting. Now, we've been laying out breadcrumbs about the topic of what's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine for quite some time, and it will now be before the court this session. Like you said about the last topic, I think we're going to be hearing an awful lot about this in the upcoming months. My blood pressure is inching up just thinking about this one. And am I wrong to be concerned here, Jessica? Jessica?
0: These are huge cases. Let's start with the case that you asked me about, the independent state legislature doctrine or theory. It's absolutely... Gargantuan. And I've written a piece for MSNBC about it. Some listeners of the podcast know I'm a columnist for MSNBC. And I actually had the pleasure of talking to Dahlia Lithwick about it last night. Listeners of the podcast are probably familiar with her. She's a senior writer for Slate. She has a podcast called Amicus, which I believe I will be appearing on shortly. And she just wrote a new book called Lady Justice. And We were talking about what's up for the Supreme Court term. And she said, it's so hard, which is true, to describe this case without people's eyes glazing over, but it's so hugely important. So I'm going to try and do it in its most kind of baseline way, which is to say if the court adopts this theory, then state lawmakers can do a whole bunch of things when it comes to elections without any oversight from state judges or from governors. And so what do I mean specifically? State lawmakers could draw district lines. They could move your polling place. They could change the design of the ballot. They could create a voter ID law. And all of those things could happen without the state court judge's ability to say, No, you can't do that. That violates state law. That violates our state constitution. And the whole theory is based on two different clauses of the constitution, which say that it is state legislatures that should determine the time, place, and manner of federal elections and should be the ones in charge of sending electors to the electoral college. Now, obviously, a lot of people are going to pause on that second, that presidential electors clause. Because if state lawmakers, not state court judges, not governors, if they're the only ones, if they have the final say when it comes to which slate of electors to send to the electoral college, that obviously has really big implications. We've just lived through a election cycle where one of the candidates uh, was apparently planning to try and send fake slates of electors to the electoral college now it is still true that federal court judges could review those decisions if there's an issue of federal law. But Joe, I think we're going to talk about this in a moment. Federal law and federal legal protections are quickly being whittled away. So again, just a huge, huge case that we're going to be talking about throughout the term.
1: Right. And this case that you just alluded to, voting rights and redistricting, Since the 2020 election, uh, which the former president still regularly and demonstrably incorrectly claims that he won, many new voting laws have been put into place in the guise of quote, election security. But this particular case is going to be in front of the court, involves redistricting and the state of Alabama, a state with which I am rather familiar. They have good barbecue, among other things. And depending on how this goes, how will this affect elections? And most importantly, What could go wrong? Seems like a lot.
0: A lot. So basically what happened here is that Alabama has seven different House seats, and they drew their lines such that uh, the district court judges in that particular state said, yeah, we actually think you violated the Federal Voting Rights Act. And that's because of the seven House seats. Alabama lawmakers drew lines such that black voters would be able to elect the candidate of their choosing in one of those seven districts. That's about 14% of the districts. But Black people make up about twice that, 27% of the population in Alabama. So it looks like that the people who drew the lines were trying to dilute the voting power of Black voters, that they should be able to, if they're 27% of the population, they should be able to elect the candidate they're choosing in more than 14% of the districts. And so a three-judge panel of district court judges, two of whom were appointed by President Trump, one by President Clinton, said, yes, this is not even a close call. And they said to the Alabama state lawmakers, you should redraw these district lines to create two majority black districts. Now, Alabama was having none of it. They said no. They appealed directly to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, "Okay, Alabama, keep the lines that the three district court judges thought violate the Voting Rights Act. Let those stand for the midterms, and then we'll hear the case. And they did hear the case on October 4th. There was a lengthy discussion about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 2, for our purposes, basically says, don't harm people's right to vote on the basis of race. Don't dilute their right to vote on the basis of race. And that, again, it looks like that's exactly what Alabama did here. I'm very pessimistic about where the court is going to go. And I think the punchline for listeners is that the court will continue to erode the protections that were part of that landmark 1965 Federal Voting Rights Act. And that's why, Joe, previously when we talked about independent state legislature theory case. And I said, well, you know, federal judges could get involved, but only if there's an issue of federal law. But as it turns out, when it comes to voting rights, we're probably not going to protect as many rights as we used to. That's exactly what this case is about.
1: All right. And to be fair, we know that both Democrats and Republicans gerrymander districts to favor their prospects. And that's an awful lot at stake. But Jessica, is this a situation where the court has become the arbiter because Congress won't act to fix the gerrymandering problem?
0: So, yes and no. I will say that over the years, the court has made it much more difficult for Congress to act, I think, to really create more robust Voting rights protections. Having said that, Congress has done absolutely nothing. They have an enormous amount of blame, and they should, at the very least, try. They should write a very specific statute that really aggressively protects voting rights. And they have done nothing. Now, we can talk about the filibuster and we can talk about why, but the bottom line is they've done nothing. And so, yes, this is a conservative Supreme Court, but they're dealing with an old law that needs to be updated the protections need to be much more robust and you know there's just been very little movement at all
1: okay jessica thank you for all of that but before we go i want to back out of these specific cases here and talk about something a little more from the 10,000 foot view which is as we've discussed with the 6 to 3 conservative majority that isn't changing anytime soon There are now some positions the court is taking or has taken that are out of step with American society. Take abortion, for instance. According to research by the Pew Research Center, the number of Americans who believe that abortion should be illegal regardless of circumstances is a mere 8%. More than twice as many people, Americans, believe that abortion should be legal in any circumstance. If you look at a multi-year survey by Gallup, If you use the phrase, should abortion be legal in all or certain circumstances, a whopping 85% of Americans think abortion should be legal. And take a look at gun control. Gun control numbers are also out of step with the current court. According to CBS News, 65% of Americans support stricter gun laws. Gallup has that number slightly lower at 57% and declining, but still. And we haven't yet seen the potential changes coming at the end of the new term in terms of affirmative action, all the things we've been talking about, religious freedom, that independent legislature, doctrine we spent a few minutes a few minutes ago discussing it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the current court has become politicized with representative democracy eroding before our eyes doesn't the court run the risk of illuminating its own lack of legitimacy as you so often say the court has no enforcement mechanism so what happens jessica this is a huge question i know and you're a law professor so you're the right person to have at the dinner table what happens if the court loses legitimacy can anyone answer that
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is one of those huge existential questions where our system of government really depends on the idea that we have three different pillars. We have three different branches, and the judicial branch serves as a legitimate check on the majoritarian branches, the political branches. And if the court loses its legitimacy the question is you know what does that mean do we just stop respecting their decisions so the logical consequence of that is well the court said that states can ban abortion but going to follow that we don't think that's right i mean that leads to a situation where we do have that overuse phrase but we actually do have a constitutional crisis we actually do have i think the breakdown of our structure of government and so my hope and i know that this is a stretch but my hope is that that blue ribbon commission that president biden put together really in the hopes that he could say i looked at supreme court reform without doing anything that somebody looks at those reforms and says okay it's time let's knock it to the place where we start just ignoring supreme court decisions let's now say that we should have rotating long terms for Supreme Court justices. Let's think about jurisdiction splitting. Let's think about these really big issues that frankly we have to address before again we do hit that constitutional crisis that we're hurtling towards. But let's not end Joe on that note. I think we should end on the note of We talked about a lot of different cases separately for the Supreme Court term, and I want us, as we move forward, to continue to look at them holistically as well. Let's look at what themes the court is addressing. Let's look at their general approach to these issues. Let's stay active. Let's stay alert. Let's continue to have these conversations.
1: Absolutely, Jessica. I think it is crucial that people stay engaged and that they stay informed on a personal level. I do not have the curse of optimism, so I don't know what to expect in terms of out of all of these changes. Maybe I should hold my breath. Maybe I shouldn't. I know you're a worrier. I'm becoming a bigger worrier. But yes, please, everyone, stay engaged, stay involved. And I certainly hope you do keep listening to our podcast, Jessica. It was an absolute pleasure to step out of that deluge of topics about legal troubles for the former president on this episode for a moment at least. And thank you so much for doing so.
0: Thank you, Joe. Have a great weekend.
1: You can find her and her writings on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter sometimes on Instagram at in Day. that's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y, and also making new music podcasts again at joearmstrong.com slash in day. I'd love it if you stop by and check those out. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hang on, everybody. We've got a whole other Supreme Court term coming up and lots of other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.